Hello everyone and welcome to the show. Welcome to the program. Tonight we're going to be discussing National Lampoon's Vacation and not the uh, 2015 uh, movie, but the 1983 movie of National Lampoon's Vacation. I thought this movie was very excellent. I think it was well done. The music score on it was really uh, well produced. Just overall, the movie was just fantastic, I think. Uh, the all-star cast that was that was in the movie did a really good job in this movie. Um, the, it says, basically it says, the National Lampoon's Vacation film series is a comedy film series initially based on John Hughes' short story, Vacation 58, that originally was published by National Lampoon Magazine. The series is disputed by Warner Brothers and consists of five main films, two of which are not sponsored by National Lampoon and one spinoff. In recent years, the series has been the inspiration for various advertising campaigns featuring some of the original cast members. The series portrays the misadventures of the Griswold family, whose attempts to enjoy vacations and holidays are plagued by... uh, continual disasters, and strangely embarrassing uh, predicaments. Um, It was directed by Harold Ramis, uh, produced by Marty Simmons. Screenplay was by John Hughes, based on National Lampoon uh, Magazine. Starred uh, Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. Those were the two main main characters of of the movie series. Warner Brothers was the one who described disputed the movie dis- distributed the movie or how the however you want to say it release date was from 1983 to 2015 which that they did the remake in 2015 uh country was the united states of america of course different locations uh was english uh now all five films total was made 113 million 113 million for um all five films that was the budget the box office total for all five films was $299,743,059. $299,743,059 was uh, pretty good for uh, five movies. Imagine what it would... I don't know if this type of movie would actually probably... Work. Well, yeah, I guess it would work today. I guess this type of... Uh, uh, well, this movie, you had basically everything. You had a family that was trying to get to an amusement park, which I personally think they should have did this at Disney World. I think Disney World or uh, Disneyland in California, I think it would have been better. But maybe they had, uh, you know, maybe they had to get the rights to it or something and couldn't get the rights to uh, to do that so they had to think of a a fictional uh place to use and i guess they came up with pretty good though wally world was pretty good and sometimes i wonder if that's where walmart gets their name from because a lot of people that go to walmart said i'm going to wally world so maybe that's where uh walmart got their uh uh, thing from um the first film was national lampoon's vacation it was 1983 it had uh, it was written and directed by Harold Ramis, and or it was directed by Harold Ramis and written by John Hughes. The film follows Clark and Ellen Griswold as they take their two children, Rusty and Audria, on a cross country trip from their home in Chicago to the California theme park, uh, Wally World. 
It was planned out by Clark. The trip begins to uh, go aweary after the family gets lost in St. Louis. From there, they make it to Coolidge, Kansas, which this is the one where Eddie and uh, Eddie lives with his wife and, and children. Um, they spend the night at the home of Ellen's cousin, which was Catherine and uh, husband Eddie. Uh, there they are forced to take Ellen's aunt Edna and her dog to Phoenix, Arizona. Along the way to there, Clark accidentally drags the dog from the back of the car, and Edna dies during a long day of driving, dropping her body off at Cousin uh, Normie's house in Phoenix. They eventually make it to Wally World, only find out that the uh, park was closed. And then when Clark finds out that the park was closed, he goes berserk, completely goes berserk. And he uh, goes to a sporting uh, sporting goods store and, and buys a uh, BB gun. And, of course, everybody knows what happens. He takes John Candy on that uh, on those rides and stuff, and they go to the um, all the uh, roller coaster. And then uh, his son goes, tells John Candy, who is the security guard, says, no, actually, no, it's the other way around. John Candy, the security guard, tells Rusty that he doesn't do very good on roller coasters, and he got sick the last time and threw up on the uh, roller coaster. So as they're going down, I think it's real funny at that point at the movie, as they're going down, Rusty uh, sees that uh, John Candy is getting ready to throw up. So Rusty puts his hand in front of John Candy's mouth, and just it's just priceless. It's it's just funny at that part to see that movie at that or to see the movie at that part is really funny. At least I thought it was funny. It was a lot of, you know, a lot of good parts in that movie was really funny. A lot of serious parts in that money and uh, movie. And then another uh, thing that was funny is that when Clark had wrecked a car and he starts walking, he starts walking to try to get help. And all of a sudden, the family gets picked up by somebody. They take them to a mechanic shop, and Clark's car's getting worked on at the mechanic shop. And then, uh, so Clark Clark makes it to this gas station, and he didn't know his family was there, but he's seen his family there, and they got the car fixed and everything. And then, uh, so he asked the guys how much money it was, you know, and then the, the guys start razzing on him about him being so stupid and all this other stuff and all this. And then he kept... You know, they he Clark goes, Well, how much is it? Come on, guys. I ain't got time to play no games. How much is it? And then uh they told him how much it was. They they said, How much you got, or something like that. He said, Come on, I'm being serious. How much is it? He goes, How much you got? And then he goes, Clark goes, Well, how would your how would your uh sheriff think about this, about this the way you do business or something? Then the guy flashed, they start laughing. The two guys start flap, laughing, and then the guy flashes his badge at, uh, at Clark. And I think that's funny. And he goes, on the way there, they this was before Aunt Edna died in the car. So they're going on their uh, trip, and he goes, uh, she goes, how much? She goes, what's wrong, Clark? He goes, nothing's wrong. I just spent 200 some dollars on four bald tires. And I think that part of the movie is really funny, too. But they make it safely to Wally World. He finds out that the place is closed. And like I said, he goes berserk with a gun and stuff. And then with a BB gun and stuff like that. And he goes, while they're on the on the uh, roller coaster, 
John Candy goes, that can't hurt anybody. He goes, and then Clark goes, this is a Magnum P.I. He goes, this is a Magnum P.I., which is real funny. And then so John Candy's getting ready to get out of the thing, and he shoots him. He shoots him with the BB gun in the rear end. It's funny. That part of the movie. Like I said, that movie was really hysterically funny. I think the very first one was really good. And then kind of the second one started kind of going downhill because they got different actors at that point. The kids were different stuff. And I think it kind of lost its magic a little bit after the first one. I really enjoyed the uh, original, uh, the original uh, kids that starred in the movie. And it, you know, something that didn't really make no sense is in the first movie, you know, okay, they're like 12 and 13 years old or whatever the case may be. I, did, I really didn't know how old they are, but I'm just taking a guess. And then in the second movie, they're, they stayed pretty much the same age. Same age. They never aged any. Like, they were always the same age. And every single one of these movies, they were pretty much always the same age. And then when the Christmas one, they came out in 1989. I believe it was 1989. The Christmas one, it's like the kids were younger. The girl would... This is what was weird, really weird is the girl looked a way a lot older. Audrey looked way a lot older than uh, than Rusty did in that movie. And it had that kid from, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of that show, but it was that Johnny Galacki that starred with um, with those uh, real smart people. It was on CBS. I can't think of the name of the movie. But anyways, he was in that movie. And uh, it says National Lampoon's European European Vacation. It was 1985. I don't think that was that great. I I found it not being too good. It just, I don't know, it just lost all its magic. I don't know if it was because maybe that the, the original kids weren't in it, that they changed different uh, actors and, you know, and all that for the second movie. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they wanted more money. <laughs> That's probably why. They, they probably wanted more money. It said this one was directed by Amy, Amy Heckerling and written by John Hughes and Robert Klan after becoming the Winnie family on a game show called Pickin' a Poke. The Griswolds win a two-week trip to Europe. Now, that Pickin' a Poke, the guy who was on the, um, who was doing that game show, he was on the Adams family as a father on the Adams family. It says it goes on to say the Griswolds went a two week trip to Europe. The vacation begins in London, where they visit sites such as Big Ben, House of Parliament, and Buckingham Palace. Having trouble with driving on the left side of the road, Clark ends up and he ends up in many accidents and unknowingly knocks down Stonehenge. From there, they stop in France, where they uh, come quartered, uh, get stolen in West Germany where they spend the night at the home of strangers they mistake for their relatives, and in Italy, where they become involved with robbery and kidnapping. This is the first of two vacation films to not feature Brandy Quaid, cousin, which is Cousin Eddie character. The second film is the 2015 uh, vacation movie. He wasn't in any one of those. In the opening pig uh, and a poke sequence, as well as the closing credits, the family's name is spelled as Griswold as opposed to Griswold. Clark's passport during the opening credits also shows his last name is Griswold. Not Griswold, but Griswold. <laughs> okay, and uh, like I said, that one was okay, but it wasn't. It didn't have the, the luster and the magic 
than I thought it was going to have. It, it was just lacking something. They kind of um, fixed that better in vacation uh, number three with the um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I, I really enjoyed that one. I thought that was a good film. I thought it was well, well uh, written. And I thought it was well produced. Everything about that movie was really good. Uh, comparing to the first one, that's kind of going to kind of be a toss up because I really enjoyed both of those films. Um, this movie was also written by John Hughes. The film follows Clark's attempt at delivering the most fun filled old fashioned family Christmas ever as Clark's parents, aunt and uncle Ellen's parents and Catherine and Eddie's family begin arriving early. He becomes obsessed with ensuring that everything goes right. Meanwhile, he is also expecting a large Christmas bonus check from Frank Shirley that will cover a surprise backyard swimming pool that he already ordered. However, when the Christmas bonuses are cut, he instead receives a one-year membership to the Jelly of the Month Club, causing him to snap and go crazy. The film's success resulted in a sequel, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Number 2, centered on Eddie's family. Now, I can't say anything about that movie because I never saw that, so I don't know how it was good, if it was any good or not. Now, uh, now getting back to this Christmas Vacation movie, now, one thing you could see in that movie is when Eddie and, um, Eddie and Clark are walking through this department store, you don't really, you really don't see it at first, but it's actually a Walmart store. You got to really look closely and when it'll just click automatically, you say, oh, that's Walmart. And it's just amazing how much Walmart has changed from that time till not till now. But I just thought that was interesting that they uh, filmed that into a Walmart, uh, Walmart store. And that was um, Christmas Vacation was really good. Uh, now, Vegas Vacation 1997 was produced in 1997. And that was, uh, now that movie wasn't written by or directed by, uh, um, John who John Hughes didn't written that, didn't direct it or anything. It says after receiving a large bonus check from Frank Shirley, Clark takes his, takes his family on a vacation to Las Vegas, immediately, uh, hitting the blackjack tables. He begins to blow all his money, resulting in them breaking off in their own directions. While he tries to regain his money through the help of his cousin, cousin-in-law, Eddie, Ellen becomes uh, infatuated with uh, Wayne Newton. As Rusty wins big at the dice tables and Audrey turns to go go dancing with her cousin Vicky, the film is notable for being the first and to date only installment to receive a PG rating from the MPAA. Now, quite interesting about that movie. I was saying early before that kids never age. Well, this actually, they did age in this one. So they they moved them up where they should be about the right age. So that was good on that point part that they did do, you know, that they did do that. So it keeps up with the times. People was probably uh, complaining about this. Hey, the kids never grow up. They never get any older. So maybe that's what they did. They They had to do something to keep it going. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Number 2 was made in 2003. It was a made-for-TV spinoff film directed by Nick Maverick and, or Nick Maverick and written by Maddie Simmons. After a workplace accident involving a monkey, Eddie Johnson 
is given a free vacation for him and his family to an island in the South Pacific. But when he tries to catch a shark during a family boat trip, they become lost and eventually shipwrecked on an isolated island. It can be uh, considered a sequel to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, although it is a more of a spinoff than a direct chapter in the Vacation series. Because Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo did not appear. It stars Randy Quaid, Marion Flynn repri- reprising her role as Cousin Eddie and Catherine, and Dana uh, Barron returning as Audrey Griswold. Ed Asner appears as Eddie's Uncle Nick. Oh, yeah, she's, that was right. Yeah, Darren Barron, she was in um, the second one when they go overseas and everything, when they win that trip. And then you have the last installment of Vacation. This is Vacation is a 2015 uh, installment of the series written and directed by John uh, Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. Following in Clark's footsteps, a grown-up Rusty Griswold, Ed Helms, surprises his role, or surprises his wife, rather, Debbie, which has Christina Applegate, and their two sons, James, Skylar Gizanido, and Kevin Steele, and Kevin, his name is Steele Stabens, with a cross-country road trip back to Wally World. In an effort to recreate the family vacations he had with his parents and sister, Leslie Mann, it is the first entry since the original to receive an R rating. Well, there you have it. There's all five of the vacation movies, including the uh, Christmas Vacation number two. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode of my podcast, and I hope everybody has a safe and wonderful evening and good night. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. Tonight, we're going to be discussing Art Bell, who is the creator of Coast to Coast AM, which is a nightly paranormal-themed radio program. Um, Art Bell was born June 17, 1945, and he passed away April 13, 2018. He was an American broadcaster and author. He was the founder and the original host of the paranormal-themed radio program Coast to Coast AM, which is still syndicated on hundreds of radio stations in the United States and Canada. He also created and hosted its its companion show, Dreamland. Coast to Coast still airs nightly. And I believe the um, Coast, I haven't heard it in in such a long time, um, but I do believe it's uh, from midnight to around 4 a.m. or 5 a.m., something like that. It used to be on the air from that time. I'm not sure what what time it's still on the air now, but that's when it was the last time I heard it. Uh, He was born in North Carolina, like I said, June 17, 1945, and he died April 13, 2018. He was only 72, such a young man to die. He died in Nevada. It says that he he died of a drug overdose. Um, He had five children, and looks like he was married one, two, I believe four times. The call sign, and he also had one in the U.S. was W6OBB, and in he also ran one in the Philippines. And I think when he retired is when he moved to the Philippines and was running his uh, his program out there, and that was on 4F1AB. And the website is artbell.com. It goes on to say in 2003, Bell semi-retired from Coast to Coast AM 
During the following four years, he hosted the show for many weekends on Premier Networks. He announced his retirement from weekend hosting on July 1st, 2007, but occasionally served as a guest host through uh, to 2010. Classic episodes of Coast to Coast AM can be heard in some radio markets on Saturday nights under the name Somewhere in Time, hosted by Art Bell. He started a new nightly show, Art Bell's Dark Matter, on Sirius XM Radio, and that began on September 16, 2013. It ended six weeks later on November the 4th, 2013. Um, now, I do know this. If you go on the, the uh, Coast to Coast uh, website, they do have uh, Art Bell's uh, work that is, uh, is on there that you can listen to. It's classic Art Bell, which if you never really listened to Art Bell, he was one of those kind of guys that would just keep you entertained. You, you, just, you just couldn't turn your radio uh, dial off by listening to him. He always kept the show entertaining. And he had one of those voices that was just, I don't know, it just, it just something that would click in your mind that wanted you to still stay uh, listening to his program. And it's just the kind of person he was. He was a real nice guy in real life. I mean, he would bend over backwards to help anybody. It says on July 20th, 2015, he returned to radio with a new show called Midnight in the Desert, which was available online via TuneIn, as well as some uh, radio stations. He announced what would be his final retirement on December 11th, 2015. He was signing security uh, concerns at his home. He said that he and his family were subject to repeated intrusions on his property in uh, Panrump, uh, Nevada, I guess that's how you say that, Panrump, Nevada. The intrusions included gunshots, and he was in fear for his family's safety. Well, I would have got out of town, too. If, that, if that's the case, I, you know, your family comes first. He chose to leave the air, and along with it, public life, because he believed that the intruder or intruders wanted him off the air. And that that's sad. That's really sad. He's one of the greats, greats of all-time radio, nighttime radio. He's one of the greats. And it's sad that people would do this to him. Bell was the founder and original owner of, pre, of that Paramount um, base radio station, KNYE 95.1 FM. His broadcast studio and transmitter were located near his home in that same Nevada County, where he also hosted Coast to Coast AM. However, from June to December 2006, he lived in the Philippines. Such a great man. I mean, just, you know, you can't put into words how, how, how popular this guy was and how good of a radio announcer he was. He was just awesome. In fact, I actually got into radio, I think, mainly because a part of uh, Coast to Coast AM. I, I really enjoyed the program back in the day. I used to work, used to work nights and, uh, you know, it, it just kept me going. And also, you know, when I wouldn't catch uh, Coast to Coast AM, I'd also would listen to Phil Hendry. He was another guy that would keep you going. And, uh, you know, he he's another uh, guy that just has one of these voices that just keeps you, on, keeps you tuned on the air, that you just can't shut the radio off. And he's another uh, uh, pretty powerful guy in the radio business. Now he does, I guess he does like a, a podcast-type program. But anyways, he's on the air, too. And he's really, uh, he really knows his business, what he's doing. Um, earlier life, um, he was born in North Carolina on June 17, 1945. 
Sources differ on whether he was born in Jacksonville or Camp Lejeune. He had a Lutheran background. Uh, Bell was always interested in radio at the age of 13. He became a licensed amateur radio operator, and he also held an amateur extra class license, which is in the top U.S. Federal Communications Commission license class. His call sign was W6OBB, just like I mentioned before about the uh, radio thing he started. Bell served in the U.S. Air Force as a medic during the Vietnam War and in his free time operated a pirate radio station at Amarillo Air Force Base. He would make a point of playing anti-war music like Eva Destruction and Fortunate Son that was not aired on the American Forces Network. After leaving the military service, he remained in Asia where he lived on the Japanese island of Okinawa. He served as a disc jockey, or he worked as a disc jockey for KSBK, which was the only non-military English language station in Japan. While there, he set a Guinness World Record by by staying on the air for 116 hours and 15 minutes. And I bet that record still is, it probably still stands this very day. The money raised there allowed Bell to uh, charter a Douglas DC-8. He flew to Vietnam and rescued 130 Vietnamese orphans stranded in Saigon. See, this is the kind of person I was telling you that our Bell is. Um, They were eventually brought to the United States and adopted by American families. Bell returned to the United States and studied engineering at the University of Maryland. He dropped out and returned to radio as a broad operator and chief engineer and had the opportunity to be on the air a few times. For several years, he worked behind and in front of the microphone, and after a period of working cable television in 1986, the 50,000-watt KDWN in Las Vegas, Nevada, offered Bell a five-hour time slot in the middle of the night. Syndication of this program to other radio stations began in 1993. His uh, broadcasting career, it says, uh, Bell was a rock music disc jockey before he moved into talk radio. His original 1978 late night Las Vegas program on KDWN was a political call-in show under the name West Coast AM. In 1988, Bell and Alan Corbeth renamed the show Coast to Coast AM and moved its broadcast from the Plaza Hotel in Las Vegas to Bell's home in that P, uh, P. Rump, uh, Nevada. Some of these words is... <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how they get... How they name some of these cities. Bell abandoned um, political talk in favor of topics such as gun control and conspiracy theories, leading to a significant bump in his overnight ratings. The show's focus again shifted significantly after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Many in the media did not want to be blamed for enticing anti-government or uh, militia actions like the bombing did. Bell discussed uh, offbeat topics such as the paranormal, the occult, UFOs, photo science, and during his tenure, tenure at KWDN or KDWN, Bell met and married his third wife, Ramona, who later handled production, and management duties for the program. An article in the February 23, 1997 edition of the Washington Post 
said that Bell was currently America's highest-rated late-night radio talk show host, broadcast on 328 stations, according to the Oregonian. Oregonian. <laughs> In its June 22, 1997 edition, Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell was on 460 stations at its initial peak in popularity. Coast to Coast AM was syndicated on more than 500 radio stations and claimed 15 million listeners nightly, which I'm one of them. Um, Bell Studios were located in his home in the town of Perump, located in Nye County, Nevada, hence the voiceover catphrase from the Kingdom of Nye. Fans regarded Bell as a master showman, nothing that he called his show absolute entertainment and expressly said he did not necessarily accept every guest or caller's claims, but only offered a form where they would not be openly ridiculed. Bell was one of only a few talk show hosts who did not screen incoming calls. But this changed in 2006 on the October 31st, 2006 edition of Coast to Coast AM. Renamed for the night to Ghost uh, to Ghost. It was renamed for that night, Ghost to Ghost AM. Bell was asked why he was now using call screeners. The explanation given was that for him to use an unscreened open phone lines while in the Philippines would require listeners to call there directly at an enormous cost, at enormous cost to them. Art admitted that he should have chosen New Zealand instead of the Philippines as an alternative to the USA, he said. It was a bad choice, and I'll regret it one day in the in the near future. Bell has earned praise from those who declare that the paranormal deserves a mature outlet of discussion in the media, as well as the approval of those simply amused by the nightly parade of bizarre, typically fringe topics. Ed Dames, Richard C. Hoagland, Terrence McNamara, Dana Brinkley, David John Oates, and Robert Bigelow were all rigor guests. Some of Bell's regular guests continue, peer, continue to appear on Coast to Coast AM now, hosted by George Norrie. George Norrie is pretty good, but he's he's not as great. He wasn't he's not as good as a talent as Art Bell. Bell's own interests, however, extended beyond the paranormal. He interviewed singers Crystal Gale, Willie Nelson. Merle Haggard, Eric Burndon, and Gordon Lightfoot. Comedian George Carlin, writer Dean Kuntz, hard science fiction writer uh, Greg Bear, X-Files, writer-creator Chris Carter, TV talk host Regis Philbin, Star Trek, actor Leonard Nimoy, actor Dan Aykroyd, pilot Bruno Stoll, actress Jane Seymour, actress Ellen Muth, actor and TV host Robert Stack, human rights lawyer John Loftus, legendary disc jockey Casey Kasem, UFC commentator Joe Rogan, and frequent guest psychiatrist Micho Kaka, and SETI astronomer Seth Shotak, Shotak and H.P. Shush. Shush. <laughs> Beginning in late 1996, Bell was criticized for reporting rumors that Cornette Hellbop was being trailed by a UFO. Some speculated that members of the Heaven's Gate group committed mass suicide based on rumors Bell aired, but others dismissed the idea, noting that Heaven's Gate website stated, whether Hell Bop has a companion or not is irrelevant from our perspective. 
Susan Wright reported, however, that Bell was also one of the first to publicize expert opinions that alien companions said to have been shadowing Hellbop, such as that published in 1998 from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, suggesting that the satellite's main diameter and accordingly natural uh, rather than artificial. On August 15, 1996, Bell interviewed William Luther Pierce, author of the Tuner, uh, Tuner Diaries, in which Pierce, uh, writing under the Andrew McDonald, uh, he predicted a, a race war leading to the extermination of Jews, non-whites, and gay people. Pierce denounced interracial marriage, calling white people who marry non-whites traitors to the white race, apparently unaware that unaware that Bell himself was in an interracial marriage as his then-wife, Ramona Bell, was an Asian-American of Filipino descent. His wife, um, whom he married after Ramona's death, was also Filipino. One of Bell's coast-to-coast interviews occurred in 1997 with Mel Waters, who discussed what is known as Mel's Hole, a royal Washington state, the opening is said to be a, a deep vertical shaft which possesses bizarre properties. No such hole has ever been physically located by anyone attempting to verify this story. A caller in 2000 named Daniel Murray claimed he was a majestic agent from Downey, California. This call served as the inspiration for the alternate reality game Majestic. Another caller in September 1997 claimed that there was an unknown threat and conspiracy from Area 51 that he had discovered and his life was in danger by even talking about it. For unknown reasons, Bell lost his connection to this to his transmitter during the call, and just as the caller's voice became more and more agitated, the entire broadcast uh, went silent. A confused Bell restored the signal about 20 minutes later, the caller or someone sounding similar, 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 called in on a uh, another line show and admitted it had been an elaborate hoax, which fooled many. Audio from the call was used in the Tool song on the album Latterus. Bell became a licensed amateur radio operator at the age of 13. His first call sign was KN3JOX. First listened uh, in the winter 1959 edition of Radio Amateur call, call Book. He soon upgraded to K3JOX, and he later held W2CKS, first listed in the spring of 1967, Call Block. Bell held an amateur extra class license, which is the highest U.S. Federal Communications Commission amateur license class. His call sign was W6OBB. Bell passed the Philippines amateur radio exams and became a Philippine Class A amateur radio operator with the call sign of 4F1AB. While in the Philippines, Bell was active on 4010 meters as well as 144.600 MHZ simplex in Manila. Honors in 1998, Bell was named as uh, recept of the snuffed Candle Award by the Committee for Skeptical Inquiries, Council for Media uh, Integrity. Bell was recognized by the Council for Conspiracy Myths and Mystery Mongering.
When Bell learned of the award, he replied, a mind should not be so open that the brains fall out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside may not be reached. On behalf of those with the smallest remaining open aperture, I accept the honor. In August of 2006, Art was uh, inducted into the Nevada Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. He did not attend the presentation. On March 10, 2007, Bell would be honored with the News Talk Radio Lifetime Achievement Award from the trade uh, publication Radio and Records in Los Angeles. Bell was also uh, inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 2008. Bell retired and returned to Coast to Coast AM several times. On October 13, 1998, Bell announced his first retirement, which was highly unexpected by his listeners. He spoke of an event, a threatening, terrible event occurred to my family, which I cannot tell you about. Because of that event and succession of other events, what you are listening to right now is my final broadcast on the air. Hilly Rose filled in after Bell's departure. Bell returned on October 28, 1998, asserting that the brief departure was brought on by threats made against his family. On May 29, 1999, Bell explained that his retirement was due to an allegations made by hosts of WWCR shortwave radio that Bell had paid to cover up a criminal indictment. The facts of the matter became public knowledge in 2000 when the media revealed that an actual criminal indictment was filed against a person who had assaulted a member of Bell's family because of the nature of the crime, Bell had wanted to keep the matter private. Ted Gunderson, the former head of the Los Angeles FBI and the host at WWCR shortwave radio accused Bell of the crime. Bell responded by taking legal action against Gunderson and as well as the host and stations, the action was uh, resolved in a settlement in 2000. On April the 1st, 2000, Bell again announced his retirement. He said that the event would occur on April 26, 2000, but offered no details other than expressing intentions to resolve a family crisis. On April 11, 2000, Mike Siegel was introduced as the new host of Coast to Coast AM taking over on April 27 to an estimated audience of 22 million listeners. The media later explained that Bell had left to deal with the aftermath of the kidnap and sexual assault of his son. Brian Lippe, a substitute teacher, was convicted of sexual assault and attempted transmission of HIV and was sentenced to 20, uh, 10 to 25 years. Bell returned to Coast to Coast AM in February 2001. Bell noted that since his departure, the show had lost a number of affiliates. Commercial content had risen to an un unbearable level, and Siegel had taken the program in a different direction, of which Bell disapproved. Bell retained some authority over the program and his creator and felt his return was necessary. On October 23, 2002, Bell announced that he would retire due to recurring back pain, which was a result of a fall from a telephone pole during his youth. Bell was then replaced by George Norrie as weekday host of Coast to Coast AM. On January 1st, 2003, those close to the matter also said that Barbara Simpson would host weekends and that Bell planned to be an occasional guest host for Norrie. 
Bell returned in September 2003 as a weekend host, replacing Barbara Simpson and Ian Pundit as hosts of the Saturday and Sunday evening broadcast. In June 2005, he scaled this schedule back, calling it a semi-retirement, and hosted only the last two Sundays of every month. Bell went back to hosting every weekend show as his schedule permitted after his wife Ramona's death a few months later. And in 2007, Bell announced his retirement, stating that he wished to spend more time with his family, his new wife and daughter. He made it explicitly clear that unlike the circumstances surrounding previous retirements, this decision was entirely positive and joyful one, that he would not disappear completely, announcing an intention to occasionally substitute for other hosts and host special shows. 2015, Bell posted what would be his final retirement message via his Facebook page. He cited safety concerns for his family by saying, by saying, if one of them were harmed because of what I love doing, my life would be over. Throughout the fall, Bell reported several incidents where an unknown number of armed trans- trespassers came into his property, sometimes firing gunshots. These events have been said to occur during or around the time of his broadcasting. This announcement came a mere five months after the start of his most recent show, Midnight in the Desert. Well, I want to thank everybody for uh, listening to my uh, podcast tonight. And just, uh, you know, if you get a chance, go check out Art Bell. You can go to the Coast to Coast AM podcast. AM website, Coast to Coast AM website, and his programs will be on there. They'll, they'll have some older programs, and it's really enjoyable. Like I said, he made the show alive. He made the show kick. Whatever he did, he kept the listeners listening, and that's what made it special. No one will ever replace Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM. And that, my friends, everybody have a safe and wonderful evening, and good night.